This is a compressed class, um, which for most of you is about the right time, isn't it? Um, I think, you know, the Advent's teaching me how to be shorter, and that's, that's good for a Presbyterian to learn. Um, The side we start with on this is the election year theology, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2. And let's begin with prayer. Lord God, thanks for drawing us together. Most of us have just come from worship or we're headed into worship. And we ask that you would help us use this time and that we would sense your presence among us as sisters and brothers in Christ. Uh, together we praise you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Everybody should have a study if we can sort of share that. Um, some of you couples could maybe get intimate and look on it together. We've just come from praying. We are very members in corporate in the mystical body of the Son. The blessed company of all faithful people, and also heirs through hope of the everlasting kingdom. And we humbly beseech thee, O Heavenly Father, so to assist us with thy grace that we may continue in that holy fellowship and do all such good works as thou hast prepared for us to walk in. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, to whom with thee and the Holy Ghost be all honor and glory, world without end. Our concern, and I think we share that concern with the Apostle Peter in his epistle, is that in Christ, in the Spirit, to the glory of the Father, we really do have a radically new identity. And our primary way of understanding who we are is in relationship to Jesus Christ and not to nationality, and not to ethnicity, and not to language, not to economics, not to social status, nothing along those lines, but a radically new and different identity. And we are not in, ultimately, a democracy. We're in a theocracy with Jesus as king. That identity has bound to have an impact on how we think and feel and react to what surrounds us and swirls around us in politics. I think there is a distinctive Christian voice in the midst of whatever cultural confusion that is happening. A distinctive Christian voice as I explained in the, the first class, I'm not anywhere near telling you how to vote in this election. I'm trying to give a foundation upon which to think and to pray and to respond within the times that we find ourselves in. And I, for one, think we're going back to the future that what was written in the first century in the Spirit is taking on greater and greater relevance for us in the 21st century. 
So rather than think through maybe the American 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s, maybe we should start thinking more dominantly as to how did the apostles prepare the early church for living in the Roman Empire? And aren't you glad you didn't have to choose or vote between Judas and Brutus? But that wasn't an option for the early church. They lived within the political ramifications that the world threw at them. And increasingly, I think, brothers and sisters in Christ, this holy community, this part of God's kingdom community, we're having to live with whatever the world throws at us. If you see on your sheet, um, and I'm really thankful for Gil uh, taking the class last week and, and really rooting it in Peter and Peter's story and a biblical understanding of the apostle. As I said last uh, time, we're chosen outsiders according to First Peter, and it'd be great to just spend 10 minutes sometime on your own and just read through First Peter. He identifies Christians as chosen outsiders, elect exiles, resident aliens, foreigners, people who never left their homeland. They were in their home culture. But because of Jesus Christ, because of this new identity, they now have become foreigners, strangers. I actually, I wonder if we should be jealous of their strangerhood because they knew they were strangers. For me, the closest parallel that I've experienced um, is the Christian identity in northern Ghana, predominantly Muslim region, that Virginia and I have gone to about six times to be involved in pastoral training, and we have a long-term friendship with the African who heads up that ministry. And there, because of the animistic and Islamic and spiritistic atmosphere of northern Ghana, you become a Christian and overnight you are radically different. I mean, the, the taboos, the practices, the, the form of worship, the overall ethos of, of your world has now been upended, turned upside down and changed radically. You can't hide. If you're a believer, if you're baptized, if you're in that fellowship, you whether you like it or not, are set apart. And how different that is than this culture. I mean, you and I wear multiple identities. You have your business identity. You have your neighborhood identity. You have your school identity. You have your kind of hobby, recreational. You know, it may be golf. It may be art. It may be music. You have that identity. And I would I'd speculate here that a lot of people don't know your Christian identity. They know you professionally. They may know you recreationally. They may know you socially. They may know you in a number of ways, but it doesn't stand out necessarily that you are a radical follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and that's partly because of our kind of compartmentalized culture. Uh, you may even have family members who don't know 
you're a real believer in Christ. And that's where it can't happen that way in Ghana, but it seems to happen in our culture that way. So the first part of 1 Peter, and I'm summarizing here um, to catch up, you'll see in that first paragraph on the left column how we are chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, through the obedience or because of the obedience of Jesus Christ. It's a radical new identity. We're given a living hope, an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. And we're waiting for the coming salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. And then that third paragraph in the left column, and all that you greatly rejoice that now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And then his fourth paragraph, concerning this salvation, the prophets have prepared us for this special time. All of that creating a new reality, a new identity. And then in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, 2 through 3, the second half of that column on the left side, which, me, which begins at the middle there, therefore girding up the loins of your mind. And for me, that's a particularly graphic kind of image. Uh, our versions, uh, both the ESV and the NIV, say something more to the effect that um, our mind is set on doing what God would have us do, being sober and alert, set your hope fully on the grace that is coming to you in the revelation of Jesus Christ. But I think the thought of First Peter is that every part of our thinking, our feeling, Every part of heart and mind and how we use our brain in integrating those two, all of that, every lobe of your brain, I like to translate that, gird up the lobes of your brain. Every aspect of your brain is committed to seeing how this revelation in Jesus Christ is worked out in every aspect of life. And that calls for a deep obedience. One of the things that you are bound to understand, having worshipped at the Advent for any length of time, is that it is all about the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about merit. It's about mercy. not about working harder. It's about working in Christ. We're working with fear and trembling, as the Apostle Paul says. We're working out what God has worked in. My concern is that we take that theology of grace and make sure that in no way we excuse a lack of obedience or faithfulness because of a grace theology. That we bend over backwards with a concern about cheap grace. Grace that could become used as an excuse. A grace that we give ourselves rather than the grace that we receive in Christ that we excuse, in a way, ourselves by saying, well, it's God's grace. And what's required of us is a required. I wouldn't shy away from that word. What's required of us is a deep obedience in the light of this wonderful identity. Have you seen the movie Sully? It really is a really good movie. Uh, Clint Eastwood is doing a pretty good job of telling stories. The American Sniper and, and this movie. 
Um, we saw it on Friday, just as a break, um, Virginia and I, and uh, uh, one of the reasons I saw it was just because we are going to refer to it in the class. <laughs> that was a motivation for me to see the movie that was out. Um, in N.T. Wright's book, After You Believe, Why Christian Character Matters, After You Believe, After You Believe, after grace has established this identity, why Christian character matters. And one of his primary illustrations is uh, the flight, 1549, the U.S. Airways flight that landed on the Hudson. Um, and this is what he writes, this combination of my writing and his writing. Uh, but N.T. Wright did such a good job, I, I quoted Sullenberger was able to land that plane because of years of training, practice, and professionally acquired skill. He and his co-pilot had three minutes to shut down the engines, set the right speed, keep the nose of the plane just right. They had to disconnect the autopilot, override the flight management system, activate the ditch system to seal the vents, and make the plane as waterproof as possible. All the while, they had to fly and then glide the plane in a fast left-hand turn so they could come down facing south, going with the flow of the river. Then they had to level the wings and keep the nose just right so that they would land as flat as possible. The reason Captain Sullenberger and his co-pilot performed so well that day was that they had trained for just such an emergency. The point being that you would never know when the crisis is going to come and when you would need those hours and hours in the simulator, those uh, you know, reflections on what you would do in various scenarios. Uh, and N.T. Wright likens that to the kind of training and development that needs to take place in the life of the believer. That once we've come to Christ in grace, that's, that's the grace starting point. For the sustaining grace, the serving grace, the saving grace that's ongoing in the life of the believer. As you read 1 Peter, and I hope I can encourage you to do that, you'll, you'll hear Peter say in just one-line snippets what is so demanding to do. Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Be holy, all of you, be holy. In all you do, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. Love one another deeply from the heart. I mean, these simple one-liners that is really so hard to do, that throws us back in dependence upon the grace and mercy of God and the wisdom of God and the joy of God. Uh, so see Sully. I'm going to get my pastoral students to see that movie and say, you know, in, in place of the pilot, put yourself as pastor. Um, one of the, 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 the tension point with the movie is not so much the landing on the Hudson as the National Transportation Safety Board's critique of what Sullenberger did that maybe he could have landed at LaGuardia or he could have landed in New Jersey. And by the time you get to that point in the movie, the NTS board meeting with hundreds of reporters um, where Sullenberger and the co-pilot are being uh, quizzed and, and uh, evaluated 
is just as tense as the landing on the river. Now, only a good storyteller could, could do that. Uh, and it just, to do the right thing as a believer, uh, maybe played out in just a particular crisis situation that lasts for yet moments, and yet it's the whole life that's developing and then responding to those moments that I think are significant. So the mind matters. Uh, turn the page and we come to how the Apostle Peter describes himself. So we've come to the start of our lesson for today. <laughs> I said a good teacher could compress. Um, Maybe we'll just lay this out and I'll ask if there's any uh, comments or questions uh, and we will pick it up here uh, next time. But the portion that I would draw your attention to right now is chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. It's on the uh, back side of the page, the left column in the narrow. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God, precious to him, now, it's the living stone, Jesus Christ, that's rejected by humans, but as you become one of those living stones alongside and with Jesus, uh, you too will become rejected. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual household to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the load-bearing stone, not the uh, flagstone of the date of the building and, and not uh, even the, the pivot stone and the arch, but the load-bearing stone, a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they are destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The interesting thing about this is every phrase comes out of the Old Testament here. Every depiction, uh, every uh, picture is uh, rooted in the Old Testament. Even that portion, but now you are the people of God. But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That comes out of Hosea chapter 2, uh, the prophet. All that was said of Israel in its ethnicity, in its territorial position, um, in its identity as a people, is now transferred to the new covenant people. Jews and Gentiles alike, Arabs and Americans alike, everyone now in Christ is one new humanity, a message of the, uh, of the New Testament. That paragraph right under 1 Peter 2, let me read that, because that does really pay attention to this election year theology. Christ's followers knew that their hope was not in Rome, nor in the local tribal deities, or in the gods of their local professional guilds. 
I wonder what would be the equivalent of local professional guilds for us. Um, Roll Tide comes to mind. (laughs) They were born again into a living hope. The people of God living in America would be better off if they understood that they could not put their hope in American politics or in the American economy. Some Christians talk as if they had no other identity or loyalty other than to America, and when things don't go their way politically, they're filled with anger and fear. Tim Keller writes in his book, The Counterfeit Gods, really good book, this may be a reason why so many people now respond to U.S. political trends in such an extreme way. They become agitated and fearful for the future, They've put the kind of hope in their political leaders and policies that once were reserved for God and the work of the gospel. I'm I'm amazed at times at the vitriolic rhetoric and slander that I hear Christians express about the, the political order. And I just think that resentment and fear and that kind of vitriol is out of place in the life of the Christian. I'm not saying not hold convictions strongly. I'm not saying hold various political positions strongly. But I'm saying there's a distinctiveness about the identity and the security in the hope that we have in Christ that ought to remove that sense of, of fear and anger and resentment just doesn't belong to the kind of... The Apostle Peter is very concerned not to base on the world. The world is the world, and he doesn't center on how bad the world is. He could, but he doesn't tell any persecution stories in this epistle. There is no appeal to victimhood. He could tell plenty of stories. He could have really endeared himself to these people by identifying with them in their pain. But instead, he makes it all hypothetical. If you are slandered, I bet he could have told 10 stories of slander. You know, if you're hauled in front of the the synagogue. But he doesn't. We'll talk about why he doesn't. I've I've taken all the time. No Q&A. This is wonderful. Uh, Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us, your love and mercy. We ask that the message, your message, your gospel, and how you led your apostles to teach us would be received by us, and that by your spirit we'd know how to take it in personally and politically uh, and be a blessing, a gospel presence in this world. In the name of Christ, we pray together. Amen. Amen.